You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. Well, it could have been worse. That's what analysts are saying about Netflix results. Shares jumping in late trade despite losing almost a million subscribers. Could ad solve the company's problems? We will discuss. Plus, Twitter wins for now. A judge grants the company's request to fast-track its lawsuit against Elon Musk. The trial now scheduled to start in October. We'll explore this particular judge's record and what it tells us about which side has a better shot. And as a major crypto lender and hedge fund collapse, is regulation the answer? The head of U.S. policy of Coinbase joins us to talk about the way out of the ashes of the crypto crash. Let's stay with Netflix now and bring in Dan Morgan, senior portfolio manager at Synovus Trust. So, Dan, explain this to me. Why are shares up if they've still lost almost a million subscribers? Well, it's kind of a confusing report, Emily, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of a sigh of relief, I think, by a lot of people coming to the numbers. I mean, obviously, the projections going into the third quarter are below expectations in terms of number of new subscribers. They're saying they're going to add a million. The street was looking for 1.8 million. They did lose less, right, uh, than expected in the second quarter. I think there were a lot of estimates. Some people are saying as many as 2 million. They came in losing 970,000. The other thing that's kind of confusing too, Emily, is that if you look at their guidance going into revenues and earnings for the third quarter, they are also below consensus, and yet the stock was up. And the only thing I can think of, Emily, is that they're kind of addressing a lot of their issues, right? They talked in their shareholder 
letter about how they're going to address the issues with all these people, 100 million people, you know, that are using the service for free. Uh, and they talked a little bit about free cash flow and various other things. So I think maybe people are just saying they're addressing their issues. It wasn't as worse as we thought. And hopefully things will get better in the future. And that's how we have to leave it because the stock is up. <laughs> Let, let's talk about this crackdown on password sharing because let's be honest, Netflix has been giving Netflix away for free for a while to a lot of people who just haven't paid up. If they crack down on the passwords, how big an impact do you think that'll actually have in getting some of those people to pay up? Well, it's interesting, Emily, because in the shareholder letter, they mentioned they're going to test two approaches in Latin America, and they're going to charge $2.99 a month, and they're going to try to work something to try to, to get these people to start paying. So I'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more about that. That seems pretty low to me, right? $2.99 a month? I pay close to $20 a month for my Netflix subscription here in the United States. But So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how they roll that out and put that together and, and try to monetize these people and bring them in-house. So. I think we need to just learn a little bit more about how they're going to do it, but that's a huge number, 100 million. So could advertising be the answer to Netflix's problems? You know, Emily, it's kind of interesting because I'm curious to see how that's going to play out, right? They signed the agreement with Microsoft to help them last week on that. I'm just wondering, and I could ask you because you're a big user of Netflix, if they got to the point where they're offering an ad, you know, streaming service and there's not that many ads, maybe it's every 15 minutes, would you be willing to maybe just say, hey, I'm not going to pay the $15, $20 a month and just go straight for the free ad streaming service? So. That's interesting. And then the other thing component is they have 220 million people using their system right now. How many people do they add to this new ad streaming service? And do they start competing against the likes of, let's say, a Facebook or Google in terms of garnering all this revenue through advertising? So I don't know how that's going to come together for them. They're going to let us know more. And they're introducing some new services, I guess, in 2023. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this new ad streaming Netflix, right? Time is precious and so is money, Dan. I mean, I think I'd have to look at the numbers and also the ad experience. You know, what kind of ads are these? How long am I watching them? Are they pleasing? Are right. they really tailored to me? The thing is, and, and, and this point has been made, you know, the, the companies that are brought up as competitors, Disney+, Plus, um, Hulu, Amazon, HBO, Disney+, Plus isn't necessarily a substitute for Netflix, is it? Well, Disney Plus is interesting because they have about 100 million subscribers of the largest competitor next to Netflix. They're targeting about 240 million subscribers by 2024, which seems like a really big number for them. But I think you're right, Emily. Uh, Disney Plus seems a little bit more different in terms of their content than what we find on Netflix. You were talking earlier about the various uh, you know, series that they have and how people get hooked on them. It's a little bit of a different component as Disney has that huge library of movies and content through all the years of Disney production. So it is a little bit different, but there's no doubt that Disney, in terms of number of subscribers, is the closest in terms of Netflix, in terms of their having the you know 100 million, which is pretty close to 220 million. The rest of the other players have much less subscribers. So here's the other thing. Is the return on content sp spending paying off or dropping off? If Stranger Things is costing reportedly $30 million an episode, is that worth it? Yeah, it's interesting, Emily. You look at their content 
expense projection for this year, it's about $17.9 billion, which is pretty much in line with what they projected last year, which is around $17 billion. So it seems to me like Netflix is getting a little more cautious in regards to this attitude. We're just going to spend tons of money, create tons of content, and we're going to get the subscribers and we'll be able to pay for it. Seems like they're starting to pull back a little bit in regards to their content budgets and expectations and starting to be a little bit more careful on margins and so forth. So you bring up a good point where you just keep spending and spending and spending. If you're not getting the subscriber growth because your subscriber growth is negative, does it make sense to keep spending more and more money on content? Do you need to bring it back in a little bit and kind of refocus? And it appears that they're starting to do that instead of this growth at all cost model, which is what they were doing in the past. All right, well, we're going to continue to digest these Netflix results. We'll have a bit more later in the show. Dan, always good to have you here. Dan Morgan, Novist Trust. All right, coming up, Twitter gets the green light to take Elon Musk to court. And fast. We will talk about what's next in Twitter v. Musk with a Columbia Law professor and our very own Kurt Wagner. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Round one goes to Twitter. The company was granted its request to fast-track its lawsuit against Elon Musk as he attempts to walk away from the $44 billion deal. Delaware judge Kathleen McCormick set a five-day trial to start 
in October. For more, we're joined by Eric Talley, Columbia Law School professor and faculty co-director of its Milstein Center, along with our very own Kurt Wagner, who of course covers Twitter for us. So what actually happened in court today? And by in court, I mean virtual court, because yes. the judge actually has COVID. Yes, she does. So I was listening on uh, the dial-in, the public dial-in actually, which felt very uh, interesting to, <laughs> to listen to arguments that way. But both sides kind of presented their case. Obviously, they'd already submitted written um, you know, elements to this. The judge took a little bit of time to review and think about things and then and issued a, a pretty quick uh, verdict. You know, She said, based on the evidence, based on the arguments that had been made, I feel that it makes sense to speed this up, not quite as fast as Twitter wanted. They were hoping to do a trial in September. But she still thought that you know, the longer this thing drags out, the more chance there is for damage to Twitter's business and brand. And as a result, she said, we should do this in October versus the Musk team wanted to wait all the way till February. Now, Professor Talley, you actually know the judge here and know her record well. I understand she's a, a, a seller-friendly judge, or at least has made seller-friendly decisions in the past. What can you tell us about her? Yeah, I think she's uh, largely right down the middle in terms of her predilections, but she's very good. She works harder than just about any judge I've ever met and is extremely smart. Now, the, the thing to remember is that uh, the Delaware courts have seen a fair number of these cases in which buyers get cold feet and try to walk away, whether it's because of COVID, the financial crisis. So in many ways, this is the most recent chapter. And Chancellor McCormick actually had one of the, these cases that came up during COVID about a year ago, and she did hold for the seller, basically told the buyer, you know what, you're gonna be required to go forward with this transaction by the company that you're now trying to walk away from. And I don't even care that your financing has fallen through because you sort of made that happen. You sort of engineered or sabotaged your own deal. So during the argument today, there was a lot of argument uh, from Twitter's lawyers about whether Elon Musk had similarly been trying to sabotage the deal. Now, we haven't gotten to any of those matters yet. The key question is whether this deal, this, this litigation was going to get fast-tracked or put on the slow track. And we're definitely on the fast track. While Twitter's lawyers didn't get exactly what they were hoping for, they, they ended up missing it by only about a couple of weeks. And she pushed what they had hoped to be a September trial into October. So largely, one would chalk this up to a victory, at least as of today, to Twitter. So the question is how big a victory. I mean, you talk about precedent here, but was that other case a $44 billion deal? And did it involve taking on Elon Musk? Unless there are cake decorating companies that are worth $44 billion, no, <laughs> it wasn't. This was a small deal. It wasn't even a publicly traded company. And so uh, there is a kind of an interesting question about whether when the stakes get ratcheted up like this, uh, Chancellor McCormick is similarly going to be unsympathetic uh, towards a buyer that wants to walk away. However... Uh, this particular deal, and everyone knew this because it was out there in the public domain, uh, you know, Elon Musk went after Twitter. They were a reluctant seller. They finally signed up the deal when he said, hey, I'll make this a really seller-friendly deal. I won't do any diligence on a bunch of these technical aspects. And only after the deal got signed up did he start to seem to have problems with bots. And I think a lot of people, including Twitter's lawyers, said, you know, th this is a pretext. This is essentially uh, the, the beginning of an elaborate set of 
of demands that was really an intended to engineer uh, an exit ramp for Elon Musk. So one of the key um, claims that he made was, oh, this bot problem is bigger than I thought it was going to be. But that was never really in the document itself. It was never in the agreement itself. It's sort of something that he injected into the picture. And, and I think one of the key questions that people were looking at today was whether the judge was going to be willing to take a long-term litigation approach, which would be kind of a signal that she might be more willing to listen to some of this bot count uh, war. And instead, she's fast-tracked it. There's still going to be arguments about bots, don't get me wrong, but they're not going to be the sort of blown-out thing that Elon Musk and his lawyers wanted. You know, Kurt, the professor makes a really good point. So much has happened, you almost forget that Twitter didn't want to do this right. deal in the first place. And now here we are. What are you hearing from your Twitter sources about what they are going to be doing over the next few weeks? Yeah. Well, obviously, there's a lot of preparation that will go into this. But I think this, you know, as Eric mentioned, like this is a, a good win for Twitter because it shows that their argument is already being well received, right? Which I think was the big thing. I think they've already sort of won a little bit in the court of public opinion here. I don't know. I certainly on, on my Twitter feed, you know, there was a lot of support for Twitter from their lawsuit. I've, I've certainly seen employees seem to be happy with how the company has handled this. So I think at this point, it's about trying to remove a lot of the uncertainty, right? Because the company has been in this weird state for months where they, you know, they say, hey, it's business as usual, but you can't imagine that, you know, you're going to be putting a, a six-month, 12-month product roadmap out the door when you have Elon Musk covering there. So I think at this point, again, they want to do this as quick as possible so that they can get back to doing things like shipping products, doing things like, you know, improving the business. Indeed. Um, Professor Talley, how do you think Elon Musk's larger-than-life personality, the fact that he has 100 million Twitter followers himself. I mean, there's a pretty, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about the court of public opinion, Elon Musk has a lot of fans. How do you think that will influence this trial? Well, there's a sense in which it already has. One of the arguments that Twitter's lawyers made today was that you just can't leave this deal in limbo when uh, it may just be thrown into utter chaos if we're going to be going into another year's worth of litigation. And that may be in part due to uh, their arguments about the amount of damage that Elon Musk could potentially do here. Now, it's definitely true that uh, that you know there is this there has long been this kind of question about whether Mr. Musk has some sort of I don't know Elon exceptionalism that wouldn't that wouldn't make him um, bound to the same rules that apply to everyone else. This is an early shot across the bow that suggests that this judge in particular is willing to treat this case just like she would any other case. And when you've got a deal that has gotten signed up on very seller-friendly terms with very little due diligence in what seems like, at least at present, to be a bit of a drummed-up reason to want to walk away, uh, you know, the, 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 the Musk team probably has an uphill battle to climb here. Uh, you know, I think there is a real sense as well that Delaware courts view this as kind of their um, look-in-the-mirror moment. They are widely reputed to be in the embrace this as the place where sort of grown-ups go to, to, to do, transact with one another. And if you put something down on paper and you promise it, um, they're going to hold you to it. And so on some level, yes, Elon Musk has a, has a larger-than-life presence, but that also has a countervailing effect that the Delaware courts uh, might have an opportunity to say, look, even for this person, uh, we're going to hold him to his agreements. Fascinating. Well, I'm sure there will be many more twists and turns between now and October. Eric Talley, uh, Columbia Law School professor, thank you, as well as our very own Kurt Wagner, who has a date in Delaware court yes. in October. <laughs>
newly released memo is raising alarm about competitive practices in Silicon Valley and helping to shape regulation. An internal document prepared for Mark Zuckerberg by Facebook executives in 2018, now released by the House, reveals the company is more worried about threats from its own products like Instagram and WhatsApp than threats from rivals. This memo has helped lawmakers put together the American Innovation and Choice Online Act that would curb some of Meta's powers. Here to discuss Bloomberg's Leah Nylon, who covers regulation in Washington. So Leah, tell us exactly what was in this memo and why it matters. Yeah, so this memo was written in 2018 by a senior data scientist and uh, economist at Facebook, Thomas Cunningham, and he actually analyzed the ways in which uh, Facebook's own products compete with each other. So the ways in which Instagram and Facebook compete against each other, the ways in which Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp compete against each other, and how... Um, those were growing or shrinking. And that was really interesting because this entire memo is about how Facebook's own products are really cannibalizing each other and seen as like the biggest competitors against Facebook's main product instead of any rivals. There aren't that many external companies that are even mentioned in this memo, you know, like YouTube gets a very small shout out. Apple's iMessage gets a very small shout out. TikTok isn't even mentioned in here. And that was what is so was so interesting to House investigators is it sort of backs up the idea that Facebook had bought these properties to sort of extend its monopoly in social networking. So what's the impact that this memo could have on pending regulation and impact essentially on Facebook's laws that Facebook is ultimately potentially going to have to abide by. Yeah, so Congress right now is considering this legislation, the American Innovation and Choice Act, that would prevent some of the big tech platforms like Facebook from self-preferencing, so giving uh, advantages to its own products over those of rivals. So one thing that Facebook does, for example, is make it really easy to cross-post between Facebook and Instagram. Right, uh, this legislation would force them to make it easier for other platforms to also cross-post to their own uh, to their social networks. Um, this uh, legislation has advanced in both the House and the Senate, but it still needs um, a floor vote. And so there's been a lot of pressure um, in the Senate in particular for this to come up for a vote before the August recess when lawmakers sort of leave for the month. And then when they come back, they really are focused on the November elections. So this is seen as like the really large and last window for Congress to actually act on the antitrust legislation if something is going to happen this year. Quickly, any response from Facebook about this? I mean, Facebook is actually the one that handed over the memo to the House in the first place. Yeah, they said, you know, this is old news. Uh, this is from 2018. You know, the landscape has shifted since then. They do like to bring up now, you know, that TikTok is, is a very emerging rival. And, um, you know, they think that there is still a lot of competition in the uh, social networking space. All right. Something will continue to follow. Bloomberg's Leah Nyland, thank you for that context. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to get back to our top story, and that is Netflix shares still jumping after hours after the streaming giant reported lower, a lower-than-expected loss in subscribers in the second quarter. But the forecast uh, still slower-than-expected recovery in the current quarter. Ross Gerber, CEO of Gerber Kawasaki, joins us now. Ross, 
Do you like what you see? I, I know you're a big Netflix holder, but here we are having lost another million subscribers. Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously losing subscribers is not a great headline, but you have to look at it in the context of obviously rising prices in the United States and the fact that they don't have a way to monetize people who don't want to pay, which is turns out about 30% of people who watch Netflix don't pay. And that's really why I think people are so bullish is the strategy that Netflix is going to be employing to get these people to pay is a two-pronged strategy that I think will be very effective. One is the ad-supported tier, which I think is a wonderful opportunity to address a global market if you're an advertiser and a very engaged audience. So as an advertiser myself, I would definitely put ads on Netflix. And then secondly, um, from getting some add-on sub uh, revenue from the people who use their mom's accounts. So, uh, you know, essentially this is a wake-up call to millennials across America that they're going to have to watch ads if they don't want to pay for Netflix or their mom can pay another couple bucks a month. But the days of free streaming are definitely over for Netflix. What's your take on their content spending strategy? Yes, there are huge hits. They spend a lot on those hits, but it seems like Netflix makes a lot of stuff. Well, when you're serving the world, essentially, you have a huge audience to make happy, you know? So, like, a lot of content they make is really for niche audiences one way or another that they're trying to serve all throughout the world. But you have to look at it from this, you know, like how much goes out and how much comes in versus and, and what they get for what they're spending. And, and I think one of the things in the report that I found really interesting was the fact that Netflix is now getting to a point where they're amortizing the same amount as they're spending on content. And they used to spend a lot more than they're amortizing. And so what we're really getting out of their financials is a real number of profitability on the content spend that they have. So if any group of people that I trust spending content is the group of people at Netflix, they just make amazing content and they have a great team. Now, obviously, valuations have dropped out there. And I wonder what you think about M&A. Could Netflix potentially acquire some uh, you know, new capabilities here? What about a Roku or a theater chain? Well, I was kind of pushing towards the theater chain idea because I love putting this Ryan Reynolds movie in the theater, which I think it could generate $100 million plus that Netflix isn't going to get. And I, as a user, I would wait another two weeks to, to watch it on Netflix. You know, it wouldn't matter to me. So you know, it makes me sad they're not moving that direction, but I'm I'm in the gaming business too, and they're moving towards gaming, and they're partnered with Microsoft, which is one of our top holdings in my fund, GK, and as well as Netflix. So I'm really happy with Microsoft and Netflix moving into the gaming uh, area together. If you look at the way Disney has monetized IP at Marvel, that's what Netflix is really thinking about in their future is how do we monetize our IP better? How do we get more revenue dollars per user? Maybe it's live events. And we saw that with the Netflix comedy specials, which were actually live events that Netflix sold tickets to, but then put on the platform as well. So I think that's really the thinking there. Um, we're a very big company with lots of subscribers and we still want to grow. But there's a huge amount of revenue and profits we have tapped from this audience that they're really focused on. And I think that approach is really, you know, attractive to me as a shareholder. I also want to ask you about Tesla and Twitter. I know you're a big Tesla holder. As I understand it, you held Twitter until Elon Musk decided he wanted to pull out of the deal. Now we're yeah. seeing this judge fast track the trial as Twitter wanted them to do. And there are certainly signs that this Delaware court could force Elon Musk to do the deal. What's your take? 
I'm not a lawyer, so I just want to say I have a pretty good understanding of law, but, but I'm not a professional lawyer. But my take on this, and I've spoken to many legal people about this as well, and my own experience in watching mergers over my life, is that Elon's made a big mistake. And this is a mess. You know, there was a material effect on Twitter, and you can't deny it. And pulling out of this deal has severely damaged Twitter and, and you know, their future. So I, you know, I think Elon is at risk to potentially losing billions of dollars in damages, but I don't see a court forcing a person to run a company they don't want to run. I mean, that's not really the solution to this. Twitter's been damaged, and the question is whether they find that damage to be Elon's fault or not because of the information that he received from Twitter, which no question was questionable. But in my mind, they had a, a merger agreement, and, and he breached it, and it's going to be a costly encounter for Elon, I think. Does it damage Tesla, too? I mean, does it make you concerned as a Tesla no. shareholder? No, it's a real positive for Tesla that te he's not going to be the CEO of Twitter. I mean, well, you know, as much as... Well, not yet. <laughs> he's not going to be the CEO of Twitter. I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't want anything to do with it. That's the bottom line. He's going to lose billions of dollars, which, you know, is a very wealthy man, so he'll survive. But from a Tesla perspective, Tesla's in massive growth mode right now. I mean, it couldn't be a better environment to sell electric vehicles. And they got two brand new factories in ramp mode at the same time. His focus needs to be on Tesla right now because the next 12 months, the 18 months are the most consequential months for Tesla's future that I've seen in the eight years I've been an investor in Tesla. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, happy that I mean, this is still a waste of time and it's still distracting, but I'm happy he's not going to end up being CEO of Twitter and hopefully hmm. he'll learn his lesson and really focus on what he's done great, which is Tesla. And, and I think that's what he's learned. Well, stranger things have happened, Ross, and I'm going to keep using yeah. that pun. Uh, Ross Gerber, Gerber Kawasaki, CEO, always great to have you. Thank you. Okay, coming up, calls for clearer crypto regulation are getting louder, but SEC Chair Gary Gensler says there are laws in place and crypto platforms aren't coming forward. More on that next. This is Bloomberg. There's a lot of non-compliance, meaning like if you raise money from the public, and, and that public is anticipating, based on your efforts, uh, some profit, that comes into the securities laws. We at the SEC are gonna do what we can, uh, but right now there's uh, far too many of these platforms that um, haven't come in uh, to uh, basically comply with the law and register. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. When you look back, there was very little self-regulation. There was inane risk management where companies took massive leverage, uh, took asset liability mismatch, which means they had short-term deposits and they lent them out long. I mean, those are the two ways people always go bankrupt. Galaxy Digitals, Mike Novogratz there saying crypto companies might have needed to better self-regulate. He was at the Bloomberg Crypto Summit earlier in New York, uh, along with Coinbase's head of U.S. policy, Kara Calvert, who joins us now to unpack it all. So look, a couple of competing narratives here, Kara. One, that there is regulation, this according to the chair uh, uh, of the SEC, former chair of the SEC, but that companies aren't listening, aren't coming forward. What do you think? Well, at Coinbase, we actually have really founded ourselves and pride ourselves on, on, on being compliant, on being the trusted most secure. And so we are regulated by more than 42 state, 42 state licenses. We have a bit license. We have a trust charter. So we actually view ourselves as very well regulated. We are regulated at the federal level by CFTC, by the SEC. We have a dormant broker-dealer license, two of them actually. We're regulated by FinCEN. So we actually think that there is a regulatory framework in place that is, that is pretty effective. But we think really what we need to do is make sure that we modernize those rules and bring them into into a space that can really and truly understand the technological capabilities of blockchain and digital assets and actually help consumers achieve and understand those benefits. So if those rules were modernized, do you think that the spectacular crash we've just seen could have been avoided? The collapse of, you know, a major crypto hedge fund, a major crypto lender could have been avoided? I think it's difficult to predict what may have happened, but I do think that there certainly, if we had clear rules of the road for um, all different types of the all different companies engaged in the crypto ecosystem, we certainly would have more clarity. Whether it comes to disclosures or um, certain requirements on how on you know how you may address different business risks or different needs. What we saw through the recent volatility is that the issue was really a credit problem, not a crypto problem. And so what we're hoping for again is these consistent rules that will help consumers understand what they're getting into and. They have crypto, and that you have businesses and, and innovators and, and new projects that can come to the table. And instead of hiring a team of lawyers to comply with what can be considered some vague rules, instead they can go out and innovate and create the next big thing for consumers. There's a crypto bill being pushed by Senators Lummis and Gillibrand. I actually recently spoke with both of them about the bill and why they think uh, this could be the answer. Take a listen to this from Senator Lummis. The bill in one piece as uh, a total bill 
is more likely to be deferred until next year. Uh, it's a it's a big topic. It's comprehensive, and it's still new to many U.S. senators. Do you like this legislation, and do you think it'll pass? I'm so really glad you raised this legislation for two reasons. One, I'm from the great state of Wyoming, so I hold all the work that Senator <laughs> Lummis is doing very near and dear to my heart, and so does my grandmother, who turns 102 and still lives there. She, she very much believes in it. So uh, I really appreciate Senator Lummis's work for the Cowboy State. Second, this bill is by far and away the most comprehensive, detailed, uh, really the intellectual rigor that was put into building it is, is really impressive, and I think it will create very much a foundation for, uh, for future legislation, and I think she's right that at the end of the day legislation can take a very long time to get across the finish line and this is very complex her bill includes CFTC jurisdiction SEC jurisdiction tax reform it includes um, sections on stable coins it's very complex and putting this puzzle together will take time a lot of different committees leadership it will take the administration so once we get all these pieces together I do think we're set up for success in the coming year Coinbase is very much aspiring to be a global company and crypto is, you know, certainly a global market. Are other companies, uh, excuse me, other governments doing this better than the U.S. or are they ahead of the U.S. on regulation? Some of the countries actually are, I think, ahead of where the U.S. is. And part of that is, is by just by, by nature of the fact that they may be set up with a, with a single regulator, for example, in the U.K. Or in, in this instance of EU, they're actually putting forward a very comprehensive approach to digital assets. We're seeing additional work in India, in Singapore, in Japan, in Australia. So there are a lot of different countries that are coming to the table and working with stakeholders and industry participants and consumers to understand what the impact of digital assets are. I think that's where we need to get in terms of the United States is really creating a, a rulemaking process and going through a regulatory process that's transparent, that is engaging stakeholders, that's thinking about both retail and institution, and really how we can move forward in a way that's really... Um, includes all of the different viewpoints. That's what we're missing in the United States right now. All right, Coinbase head of U.S. policy, Kara Calvert, thanks for giving us your view. In this week's Techonomics, controlling a computer with your brain. This might sound like something out of a sci-fi movie, but the technology already exists. And for the first time, a brain-computer interface device has been implanted into the brain of a U.S. patient. Synchron is the company that makes it, and its founder, Tom Oxley, joins us now with more. So who is this patient, and why did they decide to do this, Tom? Uh, we're not talking too much about the patient, Emily, out of uh, his respect for, for privacy, but I can say it's a patient that has a severe um, paralysis due to ALS, and he uh, is not able to use his hands, he's not able to speak, and he depends on assistive technologies to communicate with his family and friends, and he's looking for a way to improve that capability. So how will this implant help him? The concept with a BCI is essentially the idea that we have become dependent on digital devices to engage with the world, that there's a part of the brain that controls our fingers. We use our fingers to do point and click. And if we can go straight to the source in the brain that controls the intention to do point and click, put a sensor in there, 
you can decode the information out of the brain and then control point and click without the need for your hands to do that. It comes directly from the brain. What are you hoping to learn from this patient's experience? This has been a long journey. The, uh, we became the first company to get a IDE approval from the FDA to conduct a study of a permanently implanted BCI. We're still primarily focused on safety, but we're now starting to test out the how we measure efficacy. So the FDA has publicly stated that it's not obvious how we would quantify the effectiveness of a BCI, and we're starting to test out some of those parameters with a view towards preparing that packet for FDA approval and then going to commercial launch. Now, as I understand it, your technology is ahead of what Elon Musk has accomplished so far at Neuralink. How, how much farther ahead and how is what you're trying to do different than what he is trying to do? I would say we're at the beginning of a renaissance of, of brain science and I think this is going to be a huge problem that's solved for many, many patients. So there are many ways to try to solve the problem. The way that we're doing it is going into the brain through the blood vessels. We're on a particular path with FDA and we've been able to leverage decades of knowledge around safety of leaving devices in blood vessels. Um, and the way that we can expect the body to react to that. So it's a different approach. Um, it's a big problem, and I think there are going to be many approaches needed, but uh, we're excited to be finally getting into the clinical stage in the US after you know, uh, five years of discussion with FDA and demonstration of safety and testing of our, of our technology. So who do you imagine will be doing this in the nearer term future and in the longer term future? Is this something that you see anyone? opting to do? Well, I think paralysis is a massive problem. We probably all know someone who's lost the ability to use their hands. Stroke, spinal cord injury, ALS, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis. Um, many conditions make our body ineffective while our brain is still working. So our big focus is to show that this technology is effective for, the, for a patient population initially. And I think the way I think about where this technology is going, it's going to be something like LASIK. It's an elective procedure. It helps you engage with technology more. You reconnect with the world. You overcome physical disabilities and you reestablish a digital, um, a digital, your digital world. So you think that in the future, putting a device inside your brain will be as easy and simple and desirable as getting LASIK eye surgery? Well, LASIK eye surgery is a minor procedure, still a laser on your eyeball. It comes with risk and it takes a couple of hours. It's in a day procedure unit. That's the types of physicians that are putting in stents and pacemakers are using the same technology that would be putting in a brain computer interface if it goes through the blood vessels. So that's a cath lab and they are thousands of them across the country with many, many physicians who can perform the procedure it's a day procedure, it's invisible to the outside world, and it helps you reconnect, and it offsets our, you know, all of the things that come with a, with a human body that can fail for a number of reasons. Uh, absolutely fascinating. I understand you've done this a handful of times in Australia to date, but your first U.S. patient now has uh, a Synchron brain implant. We'll, we'll keep following your progress, Tom, Synchron founder and so CEO much, Tom Oxley. Thank you for joining us. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. As always, I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you? 
and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.